Well, let's go ahead and do that. Grab your Bible and turn to the book of Job, chapter 2. <clears throat> and while you're, while you're doing that, um, I want you to think about something with me. I want you to imagine as you're turning to Job 2 this morning that um, some amazing turn of governmental events were to happen this week and every Bible in America was tracked down, picked up, and destroyed. And you had no Bible anymore. You had no Bible to teach with. You had no, no Bible in your devotional time. You had no Bible to do a wana with. You had no Bible. Uh, we would get up here, we would have no Bible to preach from. All we had, all we had was what was here. How would you do? <laughs> we'd, we'd hang out a lot more, wouldn't we? Yeah. Let me go a step further. Let's say that before that happened, all we had was the Old Testament. All we had was God's uh, Hebrew revelation, pre-Christ. And that's all we were able to go by. How would you do in, in your walk with the Lord with, with just the Old Testament? Let me go a step further. Let's say that you don't even have the Old Testament. You don't have the Old Testament. You don't have the New Testament. All you have is some sort of passing down of oral tradition, of a little bit of revelation here, of a little bit of revelation here. And that's all you have in your daily walk with God. How would you do with just a snippet of God's revelation passed down perhaps from your family before you? How would you do? Um, isn't that a sobering question? Is it embarrassing? Humbling? One of, the, one of the challenges, one of the things that we are very, very, very prone to do when we study Scripture, and especially when we come to a character uh, like Job, a book like Job, is to read it with New Testament eyes. Is to read what Job is going through with all of the revelation that you and I enjoy to read it with the cross in mind, to read it with Romans in mind, to, to read it with all those years we've had to pour over God's Word and to study it and, and to learn it and to memorize it. And when we read what this man is going through and to see the stability of his faith, I think we're a bit prone to misunderstand the depth of his faith. Because when we read it, we can so easily rely on all of the things that we enjoy having a full, complete canon of Scripture. Does that make sense? So I want to spend some time today talking to you about this question. What Job didn't know. Okay? Let's talk about what Job didn't know. And I think it will really, really 
focus our attention on uh, <laughs> the depth of this man's walk with God. And as well, it will also serve us in that it will more particularly contrast the things in the book of Job that God wants us to see. Okay? So let's walk down this road. Please look at Job chapter 1. And let's just review where we've been. Look at verses 6 and following. Job chapter 1, verses 6 and following. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming around on the earth and walking on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has and on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Likewise, chapter 2, verse 1, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them uh, to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming, roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. The first thing that Job did not know is that the events of his life were a direct result of God's plan to confute Satan and invalidate his claim. Job has no clue that this has gone on. That this is about what's going on in his life is primarily about God showing Satan to be a liar, to be a failure, to be a cheat, to be wrong, to have bad theology, and to be accusing God and Job falsely. And God is going to make a spectacle of Satan by thwarting him right in the presence of all the angelic hosts. And he's going to do it using Job. Job doesn't have a clue about that. He he doesn't have the insight that we the readers do to know, oh, that's why the Chaldeans came in and did that. That's why the Sabaeans came in. That's why the fire of God came down. We know the cause. Job doesn't. He doesn't have that perspective. And just just think with me. Let's say the book of Job wasn't in Scripture. We wouldn't have that perspective either. What other book in Scripture unfolds the cosmic realm of what plays out in human events sometimes other than Job? There's no book quite like that. We get a little bit of it in the book of Daniel. We get a little bit in the book of Jude, but nothing like this. 
So Job doesn't know that the events of his life were primarily about God's plan to show that Satan was a liar. He doesn't have that. Turn back to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. You guys know the story of Joseph, now the favored son of his father, Isaac. I'm sorry, of, uh, of Jacob. Um, sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused by Potiphar, thrown into prison, rejected, forgotten, despised. And yet God's plan, this is such a wonderful story and we're not going to do remote justice to it, but God's plan was to take that man and orchestrate every single event in his life for a very specific purpose, a purpose that Joseph didn't know, a purpose that his father didn't know, a purpose that his brothers didn't know, a purpose that the Pharaoh of Egypt didn't know. Nobody has a clue about this except God. And God orchestrates all of the events of this life. It's interesting. One of the, one of the most amazing things that, that I see as I study Joseph is God uses Joseph again and again and again and again to show grace to his brothers. To, in fact, be the instrument of God of grace in their life. And as you know, at the end of the book, uh, Dad dies. The brothers start getting nervous. They make up this story about, well, you know, Dad said before... You know, uh, before he died that, you know, you need to forgive me and be kind with us. You know, they make up the little story there. Don't you love Joseph's response? Look at verse 19 of chapter 50. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Do, do you think Joseph, after all that, had a handle on who God was? That who was sovereign and who was not? And he says, Am I in God's place? And then he looks them square in the eye, perhaps with tears in his eyes, perhaps with great resolve. We don't know. But he says this in verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. What was the story of Joseph about? It's about saving half the world from famine. It's about preserving the Abrahamic line because someday there's going to be a what? A Messiah. That has nothing to do with Joseph, ultimately. It has nothing to do with his family, ultimately. Isn't that a great verse? Don't we hang on to verses like that? Guess what? Job didn't have that. Job didn't know that what others intend for evil... God intends for good in accordance with his plan. Job didn't know that. In fact, Job probably lived around the time of Abraham um, before any sort of canonization of Scripture, before of any, any written Scripture uh, was available. He doesn't know that verse. He, he doesn't understand the, the intentionality of God that, that what others might intend, the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, what they might intend for evil, God's intention is bigger and broader and over those things to do good and grace and kindness in the life of his people. Job doesn't know that. There's another thing that Job doesn't know. Turn back to the psalm that we read. 
Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And uh, that little stanza that we read, uh, it's in the Tate uh, section there, the letter T, one, one of the two letters that's T. There's a couple verses in here that talk about affliction. Look at verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I experienced suffering, I was immature. I was casual in my walk with God. Um, I easily ended up in the, in the ditch where I didn't need to be, spiritually speaking. But he says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So what does God do in affliction sometimes, according to that verse? What does he do? He what? He matures us, right? You know, he's going to say, when we get to the M section, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Revive me according to your... He loves God's word. He clings to God's Word. You don't just wake up one morning and say that. You get there by being afflicted and by undergoing suffering and by having every other rug pulled out from under you that we are uh, tempted to build our lives upon so that we will cling only to Him. But He goes a step further in verse 71. He says, mark it, underline it, start, circle it. It is, say it with me, good that I was afflicted. What? What planet is this guy from, right? Who would say that? Unless, unless through suffering and through affliction and through trial, he started to see what God was doing. And he started to see the changes in his own heart. And he started to see that, that suffering and affliction and trial has a way of, of blowing the smoke out of the room so that you can see clearly what it means to cling to God and to nothing else. And he says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. You know what? Job didn't know that. Job didn't know that afflictions are God's good plan to teach believers His ways and His word. Job didn't know that. He didn't have this verse. This was written hundreds of years after Job died. He doesn't know that afflictions are good because they're God's good plan to teach believers His ways. Flip over to the New Testament. Look at James chapter 1. Another verse that Job didn't have that we do. Another verse that talks about trials and suffering and gives us insight uh, in, into all of this. James chapter 1. These are very uh, familiar verses uh, for most of us. James chapter 1, uh, writing to the... Um, scattered uh, brothers in Christ who were being persecuted. What does he say? Chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all 
joy. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. You know what's embarrassing? We know that verse. How often do we do it? We've heard that verse probably for years. How often is that the the knee-jerk response of our hearts when affliction and trials come? Job didn't have that. And yet he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Did you see the depth of that? And it is humbling. It is embarrassing. I'll say it. It's embarrassing that he responded that way with this much revelation. I have this much revelation. I don't respond like that most of the time. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be teleon, mature, complete, lacking in nothing. Job didn't know that believers can be joyful in trials because they produce endurance and maturity. He didn't know that. He didn't know that there was a a sanctifying dynamic to trials. He didn't know that there was an an endurance element to suffering as as part of his design. He didn't know that, that God says, I am so committed to making you like my son that he brings out the instrument of affliction to bring it about. Job doesn't have that. He doesn't know that. There's another thing that Job doesn't know. Flip back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Are you starting to get how this is? Do you see how privileged we are to have a complete canon of Scripture? And how amazing it is that Job lacking any sort of canon of Scripture had the faith that he had in God. Here's another one that that we're familiar with. Uh, You know the deal. Um, Paul is taken to have a glimpse of heaven. Um, Comes back. And uh, chapter 12, verse 5 I'm sorry, uh, chapter 12, verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of that revelation that he had for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. So God brings some trial into his life to humble him so that he would not think more highly of himself than he ought to think given this glorious revelation of heaven that only he has experienced. Concerning this, verse 8, he says, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected, or power achieves its pinnacle in weakness. 
If that's true, verse 9 continues. Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And not just that, verse 10, Therefore, he says, I'm well content with weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions and with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. What's that saying? This is review. I know that, but what's that saying? Weakness is desirable. Weaknesses are desirable. Why? Because that's the the empty cup that Christ can fill. Sure. Yeah. Do I know the extent and depth? and power of God's grace in my strength? See, when we're strong, we have a small view of God. We have a small view of grace. Because the delusion of our strengths blinds us to reality. It blinds us to, to who God really is and what He's doing. But, oh, weaknesses... When I'm weak, when I'm afflicted, when I'm suffering, when I'm going through a trial and, and my strengths are gone, my, everything I've got has been poured out and it's laying on the ground, I've got nothing left. And in that moment, God says, watch how strong I can be. Watch the extent of my grace. See, see the depth of my power in this. And watch how glorious I really am. And Paul says, if, if that's the case, then I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. I'm going to thank God for my weaknesses. I'm going to praise Him for trials. Because when I'm in that moment of weakness, then I see. I see Christ. You know what, guys? Job didn't know that. Job didn't have that perspective. He didn't have that verse. He didn't have the luxury of of 2 Corinthians 12. He didn't know that Christ's power is perfected in weakness and that the sufficiency of His grace is revealed through trials. In fact, you ready for this? He didn't know much about Jesus at all. He doesn't know a whole lot about the cross. He doesn't know a whole lot about the, the final atonement, redemption. There's another thing he doesn't know. Flip over to First Peter, chapter one. First Peter, chapter one. Again, uh, Peter writing to persecuted uh, Christians, the uh, first wave of Nero's persecution has begun. And he says in chapter 1, verse 3 of First Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, uh, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. I've read about what some of these guys have gone through. He is totally, totally downplaying that. And not, not like in a bad way, but just... It's horrible what some of those guys went through. Verse 7. Why, why can they rejoice even though they're going through various trials being distressed? Verse 7. Because the proof, the, the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll stop right there. What's he saying? He's saying, you don't know, you can't know if your faith is real until it's been tested. Do you want to know if your faith is real? And he says, guys, it's okay, because what this is going to do, what, what these trials are going to do, what this persecution is going to do, it is going to test your faith so that when you come out the other end with your faith intact, you can say, yes, what a great Savior. That's real faith. That's His work. A tested faith is genuine faith. And an untested faith, can I say it, is suspicious faith. Job didn't know that. Job didn't know that trials prove the authenticity of a believer's faith. Job didn't have that insight. He didn't have that perspective, that wisdom, that, that hope to cling to, that, that there was some divine purpose and intent in his suffering. He had... As far as we know, no understanding of any of these things that we've been talking about. One more. Look at Romans chapter 8. You know where I'm going, don't you? Romans chapter 8. We almost don't need to turn there. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who have been called according to His purpose. Right? How many of you memorized that verse? You got that memorized? Okay. Isn't that a great verse? How many times do we turn to that verse? It, it's, it's, it's almost a, a drip pan verse in the Christian life, right? We just, we, it, it, we just, it's the hammer. It's the tool we pull off the shelf most often, right? It's a wonderful verse. God, God is taking the all things of my life and he does have a design. He, he does have a plan. He is, he's in the midst of even the worst things that happen. He's working in that good to his people and glory to his name. And as is so often the case, we mentioned it before, we're, we're prone to memorize 28 without 29. 29 tells us what good work he's doing. Verse 29, for, ho- for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What is the good work that God is doing? He is making me and you like Jesus 
every day. He is conforming. He is chiseling. He is shaping. He is molding in every situation. You ready for this? You ready? Job doesn't know Romans 8.28. He doesn't. Yeah, not, yeah he, he does now. <laughs> That's right. Job doesn't know that God causes all things to work together for good in the lives of believers. Is that not remarkable? Do you do what I do for weeks and weeks and weeks? You've read this book, Cheating, because we've read it with a New Testament understanding. Um, but before we move on to the next section, Scripture says, To much has been given. To whom much is given, much is required. Guys, we have a stewardship that Job didn't have. We have truth that Job didn't have. And, and it should humble us that God would be so kind to entrust that to us. That, that we, we have truth that makes trials much, much easier. And Job. And what faith this man had with what little he knew. Turn back to Job chapter 1. You say, if that's the case, what did he know? I'm glad you asked that. That's our next question. What did Job know? This is a very important, very, very important question to ask because we, we don't want to interpret the book beyond the intention of the author. Back up for a second. Bible hermeneutics, how we study the Bible, right? Uh, when we study the Bible, what we want to know is what's called authorial intent. What did God mean in writing the book to the audience that he wrote it to, okay? And so part of, uh, there's lots of stuff we can throw into Job from all those other scriptures that we said, and those certainly fill out what God is doing in trials and suffering. We're thankful for those things, but that's not the point of Job. The point of Job is to understand what did he know and what did he learn through what happened? Okay, so, so what did he know? First of all, this is interesting. We're not going to talk much about this now. We'll talk about it later. Chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that Job understood that sin required a sacrifice to ensure relationship and fellowship with God. Did you catch that? How do we know he knows that? Because he would get up in the morning and intercede for who? His family. He understood that atonement was necessary when sin occurred to maintain fellowship with God. Now, we don't know the depth of that or how much or how little he knew, but we knew he had some understanding of atonement. That's pretty interesting. We'll come back to that uh, at a later time. Number two, look at verse 21. And he said, following the loss of everything, his kids, his family, um, his uh, animals fields, servants. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What did Job know? Number one, he knew this. I'm sorry, it's number two. Job understood God to be the ultimate sovereign agent behind every event in life. Right? The Lord gave, 
and the Lord has taken away. It wasn't the Sabaeans. It wasn't the Chaldeans. It wasn't the bad guys that lived down the road. It wasn't, you know, the weather or the lightning came down. He says, God did this. He saw God as the ultimate sovereign agent behind every event in life. Number two, he saw and understood that all that he had came from God as an undeserved gift of his grace. We talked about that uh, a couple weeks ago. Look at what it says there. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. What's he saying? I came into the world with nothing. I leave with nothing. Right? What's the next statement? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't deserve anything. I came in with nothing, I leave with nothing. That seems fair, right? But look at everything I enjoyed for a time. Wonderful children, wonderful prosperity, wonderful uh, livelihood, animals, fields, uh, land, all this sort of thing, and it's all grace. Because I didn't come into the world with that. I certainly don't deserve to leave with that. God is the one who gives. God is the one who takes. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's all of grace. And as I challenged you a couple weeks ago, we can't say that when we're suffering, when we're afflicted. We can't say that if we're not looking through the lens of grace. So Job understood all he had came from God's undeserved gift of grace. Number four, God understood, or Job understood that God has the right to give and to take away according to his own will. Do you see that? He says, God, ta- God gives, God takes away. God has that right. He is the sovereign Lord and King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the creator. He can do that. And, and Job didn't have some problem with God being the judge and Lord and King of his life. Do, do you see? He had a heart such that he wasn't trying to be king. He wasn't trying to be Lord. He wasn't trying to be the master, saying, no, 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 God, you got it all wrong. That's not how it's supposed to go. He was like, of course, it's you. And who am I? Who am I to question the wisdom, the grace, the goodness of the Lord of the universe who does all things according to His plan? He understands. God has that right. Do you understand that? God has the right to do whatever He wants to do because He's God. Number five, Job understood that God is worthy to be worshipped and praised in every circumstance. Isn't this great? God gives, God takes away. In plenty, and it almost sounds like Paul in, in, in Philippians, doesn't it? I have learned the secret of being content, whether I've got a lot, whether I've got a little. Right? What is he saying? The Lord gives, the Lord has taken away, and as soon as that next word comes off his tongue, you can see Satan going... Ah! Blessed be the name of the Lord. And with that phrase, um, Satan's case is dismissed. He's wrong. And, and I, I don't know. I, I don't want to get a, a, you know, a sports arena perspective of what goes on in heaven, but I, I'm sure tempted to see as soon as he says that and Satan 
walks away with his tail between his legs, that all the heavenly hosts of heaven are on their feet cheering for Yahweh. God is worthy to be worshipped and praised in every circumstance, not because of what he gives us. Number six, Job understood that God was responsible for the events of his life, but not in such a way that God was worthy of blame for wrongdoing. This is very important. This is one of those things, I was trying to balance this out last time, and and as soon as you say it, you feel like you have to give six qualifications when you talk about stuff like this. But but here's the best I can do. I think it's a reflection. Uh, It's really a reflection of what Penny said a couple weeks ago in her question, that that, um, God, Job says God is responsible, but he's not blaming God. Right? That, that, that was your point. A very good point. And that's what he's saying here. Job understood that God was responsible for the events of his life. He was. But not in such a way that God was worthy of blame for wrongdoing. Because what he did, you ready? Wasn't wrong. That, that's, that, that's that where Genesis helps us. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Does the Sabaeans go, oh, we're going to be agents of God's divine mercy today in Job's life and thwarting the plan of Satan. We're going to go ransack this guy's farm. No. They're just bad guys and they do what bad guys do. They say, hey, look at all that stuff there. Let's go take it. But what they intended for evil, God intended for good. You know, um, I was talking to Terry about this this week. We should never call what God calls evil and sinful anything different. There are things in this world that God says are abominations, are sin, are evil, are wicked. And we should have that same vocabulary when we talk about those things. But when we talk about those things through the lens of grace and the intent of of our Heavenly Father, we call them good, gracious, kind provisions. That's a hard line to walk. Job walked the line. Last thing. Job understood that being a follower of God means accepting whatever he brings. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 10. He says to his wife, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Being a follower of God is saying, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say. Do you know how it goes? It is well. well. That's what he's talking about here. that's, That's the cry of a true follower of Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, I trust you. Whatever you do, I know is grace and good. Whatever you do, I know is for my benefit and for your glory. That's the cry of a follower of God. We accept. And and, and don't don't read accept as, you know, kind of. It's that quiet frame of spirit. It's that joyful contentedness. It's the hymn, It is well with my soul. That's not an angry hymn. That's a hymn of grace and mercy and joy in the midst of terrible, terrible trial when Spafford wrote it. Okay? Let's turn our indicatives into imperatives because this 
This is a summary of chapter 1 and 2 about what God intends for us. Are you ready? Number one, submit, it should be to God, submit to God as the sovereign agent over every event of your life. Submit to God as the sovereign agent over every event of your life. That's the first thing we're supposed to learn from Job. That, that quiet submission, as Burroughs said, to God's fatherly, wise disposal in every condition, that's, that's what God, that God is communicating through Job. God's the sovereign agent. We're supposed to submit to him. Number two, embrace all that God gives you as an undeserved gift of, your gra- of his grace. We need to see everything we have uh, from abilities to gifts to family to livelihood to money to stuff. It's all of grace. And if we see it through the lens of grace, whether God gives or whether he takes it away, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because it's all of grace. Are, are, we, are we together on this? Is everything we have of grace? Everything? Number three. We need to acknowledge God's right to give and take away according to his good plan. That's a very hard lesson to learn. That's very hard to learn. But if we learn the first two, this one's easier. If we are trusting him, if we are seeing everything as a gift of grace, if we are submitting to his sovereign rule as the agent in our life, then we can say God has a right to give and take away as he sees fit because he's good, because he's gracious, because he's God. Number four, worship and praise God in every circumstance because he is worthy. There are no blessing variables in the equation of worship for a believer. When we think about worship and praise, there's nothing that comes into that equation that's based on what he's done for me, ultimately. Now, should we rightly praise God for the things we enjoy? Sure we should. Can we thank God for the good things he does? Absolutely. So don't hear me saying that that's bad. Of course that's good. But at the heart, the foundation of it all is not the blessings. It's him. It's his worth. Remember, Remember the worship wheel? The worship wheel, it's his value, it's his worth, it's his being that drives worship. Not as Satan wrongly supposed, it was only because of the blessings. So we worship and praise him in every circumstance because he's worthy. Two more. Click. Recognize God's absolute sovereignty without blaming him for evil. We need to recognize God's sovereignty in everything without blaming him for what is evil and wicked and wrong in the world. That's that hard, very thin line we have to walk. And then finally, accept whatever God brings about in your life without sinning. What a challenge. What what, what does uh, Peter say? Though Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. Though he was afflicted, he uttered no threats, but he kept doing what? entrusting himself to God. That's how you do that without sinning. Christ is our master. He's that sympathetic high priest. And we can come to him for grace and mercy in our time of need to do that. That is what Job 1 and 2 is about. That's what we're supposed to learn. That's the challenge of this. And again, 
um, what, what blessings we enjoy in having the full text to tell us with that. And what an amazing challenge that Job, who understood so little, responded like this. He, 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 is he not our instructor? Right? We have this much, he has this much, he's our teacher. And uh, what grace there is in, in, humili- in, in humility in understanding that. Well, we're out of time. Let's pray.